Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Eversoll, and I'm pleased to be joined by the poet Katie Didden, whose first book was recently published by Pleiades 2013. Katie Didden's poems are civilized and dignified, and so are their surfaces. Sophisticated soundscapes, pitch-perfect diction, a humane voice. And in the glacier's wake, we do, in fact, encounter poems that exhibit a high level of competency as it relates to craft. And it's certainly true that someone who devotes time and energy and improves their skills is indeed involved in a virtuous behavior. Dedication to poetic craft, however, is not only a bulwark against vice, but almost always a sign that a poet is using craft to veil a great suffering. And I sense these poems are doing exactly that. Indeed, Didden's technical skills have less to do with being respectful of poetic tradition, but have to do with a more immediate obligation, protecting both the reader and the poet from her grave interior life, which is one of the most generous gestures a poet can make. We flourish in her poems because the poet protects us from her. But so adamant and gigantic are the poet's ideas and feelings, Didden wisely chooses as her primary metaphor, or it chose her as a counterforce to her crushing sensitivity our planet's geological history, and the Earth's around-the-clock mysterious behavior juxtaposed with her own minuscule performance in the world. Time and time again, Didden cannot help but see our lives both informed and humiliated by the mindless movements of Earth, movements we seem designed to desire to understand yet are ultimately barred from really knowing. Can we ever know what it feels like to be a glacier, a wasp, a sycamore, a waterfall? It's as if the glacier's wake is Didden's pact with nature itself. But what would nature want with us, her poems simultaneously seem to acknowledge. Nature outperforms us day after day, her poems show lives and dies and lives again while we just live out our lives, then gone. And despite always being present, the natural world isn't capable of caring for us. All it does is hand down decrees. But if we are destined to be both apart and inside the planet's vast drama as minor players, Didden attempts to resolve this trauma by celebrating the very force that will finally take us by employing the language of science, as if calling a momentary truth, or that the syntax of science is a sort of offering. But then she has a calling, but then she has a completely different impulse to attack, 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 which is to say, sing, sing, with the language of poetry, which is to say the language of the heart can be a sort of death for death itself. 
Katie Didden, welcome to New Books and Poetry. John, thank you so much. That intro was stunning. It's so moving. Thank you. <laughs> well, your poems made it all possible. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into your uh, extraordinary effort here, The Glacier's Wake, I was hoping we can kind of back up a little and kind of get a sense of your history and where you were born and raised and kind of what eventually brought you to poetry or what eventually, uh, where did poetry finally find you? Sure. Well, I was raised in D.C. I grew up there and I have a large extended family there. And I love that city. And, um, you know, a lot of people ask me if my family works in the government, but um, I have some cousins who work in the government and uh, my brother-in-law, but mostly my family were the people who served the politicians. So, teachers and florists and bankers and brewers and architects and banjo makers. And so there's a lot in that city beyond the government. And one of the things is also that's very important to me about D.C. is the river. And that's some of the first places that I encountered the wilderness was sort of walking along the river. And so um, I love I love uh, D.C. of being from there. Um, and how did I first encounter poetry? I guess I always read poetry or um, was read poetry by my family growing up. Um, but originally I thought I wanted to be a fiction writer. And so when I was in college, I took a fiction writing class. And I wrote this essay about, I don't know, some uh, woman who goes out in the forest and hugs trees. And uh, <laughs> I got all this feedback on my paper and, you know, everyone was saying, oh, this um, protagonist is too naive or unbelievable and um, there's no plot and there's just all this description and there's, you know, and I had someone in my class who was really kind and um, wrote me this long and thoughtful note and really said, I think that you might be more comfortable in a different genre. And so uh, the next semester I took a poetry workshop and he seemed really right. It was just that felt as though I'd found um, it's like a sport, you know, maybe you do basketball or baseball, and it was as if I found the the one that I was, um, you know, more suited to. And I also think I, I really came to poetry by reading. Uh, also in college, I had a great teacher, uh, Nancy Pope, and she taught me really to see how complex and layered poems were, and I... Um, I think I got hooked from then on. Uh, so that's that's how I first started writing poems. And how did uh, how did that express itself academically? Um, you have advanced degrees. Where did you do did you do kind of what a lot of poets do? Did you get an MFA or did you kind of take a more scholarly path? I did get an MFA. I um, I got yeah a long. I, after college, I did some volunteer work, and I lived in Seattle for about five years. But I, I always knew I wanted to go back for an advanced degree, and, or degree, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to do uh, a creative or a liter, you know, literature degree. But I, I really felt drawn to writing poetry. I was always writing poems and taking workshops, even in Seattle. And so I decided to do the MFA, and I loved that. And I did my MFA at Maryland, and then I moved to Chicago, and I taught as an adjunct for three years, and I really fell in love with teaching, and 
I had good friends, a good friend there who was in a PhD program at Northwestern, and I spent a lot of time talking with her about um, her work. And so gradually I just um, felt that I wanted to, you know, if there were more skills out there, I wanted to go and seek them out, especially as far as how to be, a, you know, a member of the academic community. And um, so then I went and got my Ph.D. at University of Missouri. And I, did, I think it is because, for me, I always felt that studying poetry is sort of like an apprenticeship where you're – and having this chance in the Ph.D. program to really study poem, poets in depth and to – have all these structures that require you to do that and to study the history of um, poetic movements. And um, it, I really loved it, and I really think it um, made a huge impact on my work, having that kind of intense apprenticeship. Katie, when I, when I look at the Glacier's Wake and I open it up and I look at the acknowledgments page, it mm-hmm. strikes me how in debt you feel to others in the creation of this book. Can you talk about, I was really struck by your generosity and how many people you had on your radar out of appreciation. And I was wondering what has been the role of, of friends and, and colleagues in the creation of this book? That's a terrific question. You know, I think that, that I've discovered that recently, that part of what drew me to poetry is really that it is all about connections. Even when you think about metaphor, you know, yoking unlike things together or this kind of synthesis of seeing and meaning and um, trying to put things into form and um, associating it. It's a very, it's a, it's an art form of making connections. And I, I understood, I really, recently I thought how much that translates into what poetry has meant in my life and how it has introduced me. Because I write poetry, I've met all these incredible people, you know, I um, who also are poets or writers or artists. And um, so it does seem to me that, you know, you have this image of a solitary um, artist in uh, some isolated uh, cabin somewhere doing works of genius, but for me, it is really this opportunity for conversation, for dialogue. It's um, it's this notion of a workshop where everyone comes together and uh, talks about the work. And it's it's um, the audience that you write for is so important to the poems themselves. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've almost all of these poems I've had, you know, have been opportunities for conversations with people about the themes in them or the um, forms or the structures or it's, it's you know, it's, when I was writing the acknowledgments, I was kind of amazed, too, to look back at them all and think about how it's kind of a record of um, friendships, uh, even though you wouldn't be able to see that overtly. But um, each one, the creating of each poem has all of these associations for me about good conversations and, and and good people who were around when I was writing this stuff. So. You do give a true sense of that. Um, when I think about the poems and I think about the people involved in your life who kind of contributed to them in one way or another, if you consider all the poems in the book, uh, were they written at different points in time? Was uh, What was kind of the genesis of the book? How did it 
come together into a cohesive manuscript? Uh, are these a lot of disparate pieces? Because we know in the book there does seem to be kind of some anchoring kind of uh, conventions going on there. I'm just wondering how all these poems finally came together. Well, I wrote the book probably over over six years, and um, it is it sort of, it does sort of track different things I was interested in over that time period. Um, and I, at one point I wasn't sure that how they would all fit together, but I was sort of trusting that there was, there was something coherent in them and, um, you know, reading them through again, I did find, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting to observe your own interests, this, this sort of map of what, um, you keep returning to ideas that, fascinate you. You know, for me, I'm fascinated by geology, and I love to travel, and um, so a lot of the poems began as just retellings of those experiences, uh, and then you'd move, I'd move off from there to the sort of tangent of sort of understanding the experience of why, I feel, you know, what's this relationship I feel called to explore these dramatic landscapes that's kind of fraught, this, you know, especially thinking, you know, there's also this impulse to both sort of consume it and conserve it. And so you're at this, you know, I think that comes up again and again in, in how I experience this, my desire to go out and see all of this, um, these, you know, vast landscapes, these remote areas. Um, so did that answer your question? Well, no, I think, I think definitely uh, it does. And it makes me want to ask you, um, you know, one can't help but read your book and notice that uh, that we are taken abroad often. And I'm wondering what can you pinpoint? What is this impulse uh, to travel and not only to travel and whether like this is something that came naturally to, say, your family or was this something you really kind of struck out on your own doing or maybe it was just a matter of circumstance, but also a lot of. The places you visit, you are definitely uh, you're definitely struck by the spectacle of of the landscape. And how do you kind of situate yourself or the speaker, or you know, when you encounter these landscapes, essentially, how do you process them? Well, to the first part of that question. Is whether it is something that I grew up doing. My family, we used to go to the Blue Ridge Mountains every other month or so and go hiking. And so there is, I did sort of grow up with that idea of um, enjoying uh, going out into the woods and having sort of different landscape and, uh, you know, going hiking and getting away from the city. Um, and uh, sort of so you asked me what it would be like or what happens when I face these landscapes. Um, I guess in some sense there's this romantic idea of when you face these dramatic landscapes, you kind of understand the smallness of your own life, that um, there's this uh, sort of self-elegy quality to it where you, you see the span of human mortality against geologic time and it's um, this, I don't know, gives you this perspective on who you are in relation to the world and one, I actually find I find it very empowering for some, you know, that we're given such a short amount of time in order to see uh, the world or to be in it, um, and so I think that comes up um, 
quite often. Or it, and I think, well, I was really struck by what you're saying about the forms in the book and this underlying sadness or emotion. And, and most of the poems in the book are elegiac. And when I was writing the book, as I was writing the poems, my father um, passed away. And he was an amateur naturalist. He was a bird watcher, and he could name all kinds of trees and wildflowers, and he loved being out um, in the woods. And um, so that language, when it comes up in the book, it's often an uh, homage to my father. So I really associate that kind of observing and naming and recording. That impulse um, comes from him, and uh, or we shared that. So... Um, so I like what you're saying about this being a figure of finding a way to put language to deep emotion. And uh, for me, having that perspective when you're seeing, even, you know, if you're that small, even your worries are kind of that small in the face of this vastness and trying to reconcile um, um, how you fit against that. Uh, like I said, it just, for me, is very, it's somehow empowering to be, to realize that um, you're just a tiny thing in this vast cosmos. So. Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right that there's two encounters one can have in that situation. And for me, your encounter with the vastness of these landscapes rings completely true to me. And that it is that to understand the scale between you and your brief time on earth compared to what's around us. Um, some people, I think, you know, that might cause great anxiety in them. And I like how you, and I agree with you that this is in fact potentially liberating. And I love how you said that when you're encountering, whether it's going on hikes in the Blue Ridge Mountains or whatever, there is something to be said when we encounter kind of a, you know, these landscapes that are just, uh, they dwarf everything about us that I like how you said that our, our concerns and worries, not that they're necessarily petty. And I think that's the fine balance your book wrestles with is that, yeah, that these landscapes might put our feelings and our concerns and the things we wrestle with in real true perspective. And yet at the same time to experience that withering of our concerns is in many ways to kind of joyfully kind of embrace them no matter if they are um, bring pleasure or suffering. And I'm glad you brought up your dad. Uh, the, your father permeates throughout this book. And I was wondering if, if you would like to just kind of speak maybe briefly about the impact of a loss of a parent on this uh on this book and how how you you know how does how do you as a just a poet never mind as an individual process that absence and then work it out in lyrical arguments in your in your poems well i felt very grateful to have poetry as i was uh going through grieving the loss of my father um, because I had, you know, it was my job to sort of sit there and process, you know, that's my job is to sit and think through these things and to find uh, words for them and to um, sit in the quiet and meditate. And um, so I felt really grateful that um, I had the time and space to really um, 
to really be present to all those feelings. And um, so I can't remember the second part of your question. No, I think I think you I think you generally answered it. Uh, one thing about the glacier's wake is is the title, and a glacier is definitely. I it's almost uh, hard to describe. It's it's beauty is so silent, foreboding. It's so many things. What exactly drew you to the glacier? It seems that you have been around. <laughs> like literally, you've been around glaciers. Uh, uh, why'd you title the book this? I mean, why was that central to you? Well, in part, it was again just going back and and looking at the patterns that were in the poems themselves, and and what I was seeing recur in the poems. Actually, the the book used to have uh, uh, the title used to be Avalanche because that's the longest poem in the book. Right. And that's really the anchor of the book. Uh, but Quincy Troop has a book of poems titled Avalanche. And so I wanted to choose a different title. And I spent a long time looking through the book for uh, some phrase or something that would fit. And I, there are a ton of glaciers in the book. As you said, there's some that are, I try and speak in the voice of a glacier. And there's other perspectives on the glacier. And... um so I was reading about glaciers, and I was reading two different books, and both mentioned this term, which must be a technical term called the glacier's wake, and they had images of sort of the detritus that's left when a glacier recedes. Yeah, and, it's really it's um, a beautiful, beautiful concept. It really is. Yeah, and I think uh, when I saw that, as soon as I saw that, those uh, phrases, it just kept ringing in my head, and... Um, it seems like, uh, and actually when I found that title, I had a, uh, the opening poem in the book now is called The Glacier's Wake. It had just been titled The Glacier. Uh, and once I changed the title of that poem, it actually, that's how the whole book um, found its structure. Right. Um, because when that became the opening poem, suddenly there was a sense of what was going on here, of this recording of um you know, as in the poem it says evaporating history, this idea of something that's receding and you're trying to um, name it and you're trying to be among it and it's also this sort of overwhelming figure. I had been to the Perito Moreno Glacier in Patagonia and um, so I had spent time. It's such an interesting place because it's almost, you know, they've... Uh, to, for, for conservation purposes, they've made all these bridges and, and and fences that you stand up against in order to watch the glacier. And we also took a boat out and um, to see it, but you always stay at some distance from it. It's sort of this, it's almost like watching a film. It's, it's really it's really kind of odd how you're um, you're made to observe it. And but it felt like this sort of living thing, and uh, so. That's I, and so I wrote a lot of poems coming out of that trip and, and from many different angles, and so that's where the idea of the glacier came from. Yeah, and I love I love the word uh, wake just because it is something we do after sleep, or it is something we attend when someone passes. Uh, mm-hmm. When you did speak that your father was. Um, 
kind of an amateur naturalist. Can we, is it safe to say that's exactly where your kind of love of the natural comes from? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that. I mean, and I think, you know, it was part of, for my whole family, it was part of our um, experience as a family, of, you know, going out to, going on trips to the West, or like I said, going to the Blue Ridge. And, um, you know, I'm not, it's funny because every time I hear bird song, especially, you know, right now I'm in uh, the mountains in Virginia and I'm hearing all these birds and I have this little pangs of guilt that I should know their names because my dad could identify them <laughs> by their sound or by their flight pattern or, right. you know, he had a large life bird list. And, and like I said, he could, you know, identify plants. And I remember one time we walked out into the backyard and there were, he had this dragonfly book with him. And within 15 minutes, he had named six or seven different kinds of dragonflies in just in this little patch of flowers in the backyard. So I certainly don't have his um, knack for that. Uh, I Maybe someday. I always think, you know, <laughs> soon I'm going to, you know, be a serious bird watcher and go and learn all the names of things. Um, but but that desire to be outside and to be um, trying to find maybe not the proper name, but some kind of uh, name for things is... Um, definitely uh, he was really influential in that. So. No, he sounds like um, a remarkable man to have grown up with. When you mentioned the Glacier's Wake as your first poem, I thought we could go ahead and move inside the book. Okay, and, that sounds good. And why don't we start off uh, hearing the Glacier's Wake? Uh, yeah, please read it whenever you're ready. Sounds good. Okay. The Glacier's Wake Two snout, blue eye, white-tongued as icy jove on a god-slow way. As alive as how I thought my grief should be, a heaving ice field, an evaporating history, onto which, inside the crags of which, I like my mind to climb. Down where the cold erases the weather's structure, where ice eclipses the too-wide sky, I waited in a cell of air for the year to melt each brittle inch into what's green. The growing sea, the wind-scummed water mirror, with clouds I read as words from my loved dead. By my own heat, I melted room to hold my body. I made a god of birds out of the man. Thanks, Katie. That was great. Um, You know, in a lot of contemporary poetry, or even in some classrooms, uh, I've heard, you know, that people just kick around the adjective and and beat it up, but you don't do that at all. And I always find adjective to be extremely generous in many ways, and even that a poet doesn't have a choice, especially when that poet uh, is so wed to the vision of things. It's really a beautiful poem, and one line that, of course, stood out to me was as how I thought my grief should be. And, again, this idea of of grief just is throughout the book. And also, I think, what I said in the opening, 
that your hyper-consciousness to the sounds of language, the unstressed, stressed, the whole interplay of language, uh, what has been your, your relationship kind of to form? Do you, do you, you know, what is, would you consider yourself kind of someone who is drawn to kind of formal qualities, what I mean, metrical at all? Um, wow, there's so much in what you just said. First of all, about adjectives, um, I read some, I think Ann Carson has a meditation on the adjective as being one of the latches of being, <laughs> which I always loved. Yeah. And um, I think, yeah, we are taught to sort of shy away from them, but I think sometimes I have a little collection of people who, when I find an adjective that's just shocking, I have a sort of collection, I collect them when I see them in poems. That's great. Um, uh but as far as me and formal poetry, I think I resisted that for a long time, um, you know, using forms. Uh, I think I always wanted to be more uh, free-form and using free verse. And I still think that some of the most powerful poems in this book even are ones where I really whittled it out of um, a huge long draft into something that was much more free-form or free verse. I still find that to be some of the most compelling, but I have to say I now know how much I love. I love writing in form. I, and again, and for me, I don't know if it's um, my sociability that you were seeing in the beginning, but form feels very companionable to me. I feel as though I have some kind of company when I'm writing in form. And um, it brings me back to the page, and I have, I have this sort of puzzle mind, and I love working against uh, constraints like that. So... Um, I the one thing I I tried to write a bunch of sonnets one time and I don't think I ever got to anyone that satisfied me but I really do like these um, weird Welsh syllabic forms and mm -hmm. odd uh, structured rhyme forms and uh, something that's a little more spiky um, that does appeal to me and I but I do think you know um, I also you know love working in and meter irons and you know. I definitely yeah, I'm, and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm totally uh I can I confess I'm sympathetic to it. Not as a matter of taste, just my own personal preference when I write poems because I can only speak for myself that I I really and I think you were speaking to this, although I never thought of it as a companion. I always I was like <laughs> I, I thought of them as very needed guardrails for me, and uh -huh. uh, and but at the same time, I think uh, you know, I think no one, sh yeah, just like you said, there's no reason to be adverse to free verse. But I think I don't know. I guess I'm just speaking for myself. I really enjoy kind of starting out in sort of a metrical pattern, and then letting myself organically loosen out of that tight coil. Because if I, if I, and then maybe you have the same experience, just kind of starting off kind of so organically that my personality and the way I work, uh, I'll just make a complete da disaster out of it. So. Yeah, I'm totally, I'm with you. And I think it also has to, well, for me, it has to do with engaging with emotional material. Yeah. And um, to, for, I don't know if, if it's, if it, there is no guardrail to that emotional material, it can just um, be a, too sentimental or, for me, too uninteresting. So that there's something... I don't really know what I'm 
thinking <laughs> until it gets into some kind of tension with form. Yeah, and there's something about those those constraints. I feel it's just been my experience. So I I, <laughs> I don't want to generalize at all for anyone else, but that for me those constrictions kind of uh, uh, force certain language into being. And while some of it, I think, can have a tendency that diction, like meter can can kind of sometimes push diction into, make it flutter into an embarrassing diction. And to me, that's one of the other challenges too. But most of the time, if I can rein that in, that that it, it brings uh, just a certain quality to the line that seems to reflect the control I need before I freak out, and also, yeah. <laughs> and also just yeah. a, a musicality to the language that I think whatever I'm describing sort of needs, so it's palatable. But anyway, let's let's move on to another poem. Um, okay. And there's uh, those few poems where you're speaking through the persona of a glacier, a wasp, a sycamore. Uh, and we're going to turn to the sycamore uh, on praise. Is it, let me see where it is. Um, so is there anything you want to say about the sycamore in general? Why you or let me ask this. When you think about those poems in which you were speaking through the glacier, the wasp, the sycamore, did you find that? those perspectives because of those objects uh, were those poems kind of trying to get at something different? For me, it was actually another kind of attempt at um, another constraint to gather vocabulary. So it was almost like working from a particular field of words um, mm. when you pick this persona who is, you know, what would, what kind of language or what would, you know, what forms would a sycamore plausibly? <laughs> it's, it's odd to say that. And I, you yeah. know, I, I also assign, each of them also has a secret second persona. So mm. um, the sycamore is also a minister. And so there were these two constraints in my mind working um, to bring about a kind of language and a kind of interest, um, mostly just to... Uh, get outside, get into a different, um, again, field of words or to describe experience this constraint. And um, the sycamore, all, all of the forms, when I, so for each of those persona poems, I used a different form to get out a different voice. So the, the sycamore always speaks in Welsh syllabic forms. Hmm. <laughs> and so there's like a trifecta of constraints going on with the sycamore and it's again it's something that I there's a sycamore in Columbia, Missouri that grows straight out of rocks and um it's always been I just always loved seeing it and so um this is sort of you know, writing in the voice of a sycamore which well, seems sounds, really weird but Yeah, no, I mean <laughs> you mentioned a minister and uh, some kind of in I'm kind of intrigued, but let's hear the poem first with that maybe with that minister in mind a little. Okay, here it is. The Sycamore on Praise. A way to stay put is to feel Earth tilting, to know its vast surface curves, that the sky's brightening is not the sun flattering you with its attention, just the speed at which you're spinning west. You're a speck. You aren't meant to last. 
seeing death everywhere, you can choose despair, blunt your roots on rocks, accuse the cold wind as it lashes your limbs, then train your shape to the synonym for whip. You can rip the sky to skim water. Or you can watch yourself change, marvel how death models you with strange spots, wrinkles your skin and plumps your veins. In the shade, you can love what repeats, branched river and snake tracks in the leaf, the fruit dangling like suspended suns, the years cycling, the slant-lined seasons, or the harem like a gray beacon on the same high limb each afternoon. Our daily habits, hearing a tune in thunder, words in the shaking leaves. Praise the stuttering flow of light off waves. Praise the linking wind, the sudden rains promise that what was will be again. Praise lush soil. Praise infinite patterns of which you are made to which you will return. Thanks, Katie. That was great. Um, death and mortality, they're all over this book. Um, <laughs> you know, poetry doesn't have to be about that, but I do respect, you know, like, I just feel kinship with those who kind of just have an intrinsic sense of the absolute heartbreakingly <laughs> bittersweet fact that they are alive <laughs> and that in yeah. fact it's so temporary and that that's where the poetry comes out of. Uh, it doesn't mean I respect all kinds of other poets who are driven to poetry for, for a number of reasons. Uh, but for me, the central conundrum of kind of my daily life is that it's it's very short and uh I'm not going to be here very long and your poems seem to uh <laughs> seem to be acutely aware of the same thing real quick why why uh kind of did you have a a minister kind of floating floating around these sycamore poems I think it was more just sort of some uh strange personification I give that that um particular tree always seems to be so um, upright. There's something about its, I don't know, its appearance that called a minister to mind. But I think also, I mean, a lot of the, there's sort of an underlying, uh, for me, this um, questions of faith are really interesting and uh, important to me in terms of how to confront death and um, whenever there's an impulse to uh, move through the fear of death into a um, assurance of connectivity. Um, for me, that relates to um, questions of faith and um, ideas of love and what love is. And um, so that's, I was sort of interested in uh, making that, those issues more overt. And so uh, making the sycamore a minister gave me a way of um, treating those themes a little more directly. So. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, it's interesting that you brought up faith. It seems it seems that faith is trying to wrestle with that exact fact of our our <laughs> you know our mortality, and mm. and it's interesting because when you were talking about kind of your background uh, and your relationship with nature. You know, I know I know those who are very connected to nature who aren't necessarily very connected 
to ideas of faith. And in fact, they kind of, I think, look at nature as their their life orienting story. So I was a little surprised to hear faith come in. And and to me, it is faith is in many ways just the the poetry for for people who are aware of of the brevity of of life and that life is suffering but you rightly bring in then in the face of that you know what is you know what is this thing uh that we wrestle with called love and just that interplay i think you kind of expressed it nicely but is there anything uh is was faith anything that you uh that your family the culture of your family was even oh, yeah, remotely absolutely. interested in okay yeah yeah i was i was raised catholic and i went to catholic school my whole life and um you know i yeah i continue to go to mass not uh, super regularly um but uh i i'm interested in this sort of social justice aspects of um the church how the church you know i have such a life of, you know, solitary sort of navel-gazing in some ways, this work of um, poetry, work of the mind, I should say. And so, for me, the uh, faith community is a challenge to that. It's a, it's a, it's what helps me to sort of, again, think about kind of connections, relationships, how to be in, um, and not, uh, I don't know, not a self-focused risk, but always sort of working towards this um, greater uh, uh, compassion yeah. for others. And um, so, I've, you know, I, I have a lot of struggles uh, with the Catholic Church, and I um, and I continue to struggle and ask questions and, um, you know, be angry at some of uh, what's happening there. But I'm sort of lucky to have, to know other people who... Um, allow me to have that paradox of having both things, of being both uh, desiring some kind of community like that, but also being able to really question it. So um, it's something that, yeah, right, it's something that I um, is in sort of the background of, uh, of this book, um, again, as something that is what I always come and return to is this mystery of what is, what is, what is meaning? <laughs> no, I, I think you're absolutely, no, I'm right there with you. I think, I mean, there's, yeah, there's no more ruthless account of, of our nature than maybe the gospels. And they, <laughs> they call us out in ways uh, that are, uh, that are just uh, challenging and comforting all at once. But they, they, it acknowledges exactly that 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 mystery, and and also I think when you bring up the social side of, you know, in our context, Christianity, the the idea of the social energies uh, found in in the Gospels, I think you're speaking to that. But also, it's interesting because it seems to go in hand in hand to for me that those I encounter who are most sensitive to to life and living and and then mo- almost most importantly death uh they they feel at home in faith and don't necessarily see it as based on a series of propositions that once faith is really in 
informs a way to uh, kind of a stance and attitude toward the world and toward experience. And uh, yeah, I think you, uh, I think you articulated that exactly right. Yeah. Um, let's, well, it's certainly yeah, it's the cultural part of, of um, who I, you know, the culture part of who I am. I think someone would accuse me of being a cafeteria Catholic, and I'm intrigued right. by people who are more um, not just intrigued, but I admire people who um, have very firm commitments um, right. and. Uh, for me, it does end up, it is something that I continue to explore that, um, yeah, I'm not sure how I stand in relation to it exactly. I have, like I said, paradoxical feelings. Yeah, no, no, and I think that's the exact nature of faith, that it's paradoxical that one walks around simultaneously with a sense of faith and uh, a, a sense of doubt, and uh, that those two things can actually uh, complement one another and not necessarily be antagonistic to one another. And it's depressing for me to hear uh, kind of the general, like, kind of cultural debates that go on between science and religion because they're just, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess religion is whenever you put human beings into institutions, imperfection and corruption will flourish, but and which is easy to call out. Um, but, yeah. Anyway, I think we can move on from there. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, well, it, it's endlessly fascinating to me because uh, I'm sympathetic to to the idea of embracing a mystery, and that I I refuse to think that. And maybe I I sound terribly naive, but I'm not ready to reduce everything down to a physical event. Um, so. There's a poem I definitely wanted to get to, and okay. kind of maybe it pulls some of the wattage out of our conversation just a little and takes us <laughs> elsewhere. Uh, okay. And that's the poem, Embrace Them All. I was wondering if you could read that, and if you want to say anything about that before you read it. Sure. Uh, you know, this is funny. I think this is, uh, musicians have a greatest hit. This is the one that, um, this is my greatest hit, you know, the, uh <laughs> I got so much feedback when I when this was published um, from from random strangers who would uh, send me postcards and send me uh, messages and it was so gratifying and uh, um, so I can say that about it um, but so I'll read it I guess embrace them all most afternoons I'd run laps through Park Brassin where grows the second smallest vineyard I have ever seen and where those silver prune-back stalks looked blunt, strung out on wires, and mostly dead all winter. That was how I saw them. That's all I expected. Even in the cold, I'd see a guy my age there once a week, playing his guitar. He'd sit next to the bench where I'd be stretching. He rarely spoke just to ask if I'd like a song, until the week before I left for good. I was sitting at the top of a hill about a hundred feet away from where, if you stand tiptoe, you can see the Eiffel Tower. He sat too close to me. We spoke of many things. Then he suggested we go at it right there, on the ground, under the sun. This is how one lives who knows that she will die. Rolling in the arms of anyone she can. Rolling in the arms of a musician. Aware that no one cares much what we do in little knolls behind Reedy Forsythia 
in the middle of a Tuesday, in the middle of living. And I would know now how he felt and the ground against me and whether he was rough or sweet. And what is possible would widen every hour. Oh, but me, I thought I was immortal. Katie, thanks. That was great. Well, maybe you get a lot of feedback because it's it's so provocative. (laughs) (laughs) But what it's really, I mean, what it's about is, it's again, I mean, there's so much great humility to your poems. And what really, really uh, stood out to me, among other things, was that no one cares much what we do in little knolls behind Reedy for Cynthia in the middle of a Tuesday in the middle of living. And it just like, it it kind of uh, held me accountable for a second in the way that I get hung up on the, the most silly anxieties and, and, mm-hmm. and moments of weakness in which I'm codependent on how other people are thinking of me or seeing me and how, how just ridiculous it is. And I think that kind of a uh, moment of, um, Eros with the musician is really just a representative of of a particular type of just liberation from kind of the scaffolding of every day, which feeds us this narrative and shakes us by the shoulder every day that we need a we need to care about everything and we need to care about what people think and and that it was just it kind of like I I think what I said is it like kind of released kind of a lot of energy out of uh out of the seriousness uh, it reminds me of a an archie amon's uh line from one of his poems that i always tell myself when i get out of control and that is you know what <laughs> wouldn't it be silly to be serious now and so this poem, <laughs> this poem, yeah this poem is really kind of a gift to uh as an antidote to uh an antidote to the kind of petty anxiety that we're told we should be feeling constantly. Uh, and, the, oh. and the last line, uh, I mean, it, it really kind of baffled me. I didn't know how to read it. But uh, did it take a lot of guts to just have that single line stanza there? <laughs> um, I don't remember that. I, no, I didn't. I, I didn't. Um, I think it was, this is just a result of, you know, I revised a ton. And so. Yeah. It's, it it's kind of a silly question, but. No, no, but, but um, uh, yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't give much thought to it. I think, um, yeah, probably, uh. I don't think you're supposed um, to. You don't, no, yeah. I don't, it just like jumped out of me. And I think it's because somebody, I don't know, somebody might have, was looking at a poem of mine and I think they might have called me out. And I was like, really? You, right. That's something I should be worried about? And, uh, they told me I should be. So I was like, huh, maybe Katie has some thoughts on this. But you're right there with me, you know? Like, hey, that's how, that's how right. it landed. It feels right. You should do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, is there anything more you want to say about that poem? Well, I think it just relates again to that, uh, perspective of, uh, what you were saying, this, this, um, Panorama. When you, take, I think, I guess what I was going to say is that's part of when you travel to other places. I think that's part of why that feeds my work so much is that you are the stranger in this yeah. land where everything's unfamiliar and even the customs are unfamiliar. You know, I was in France just for four months, but I was speaking French every day. For some reason, 
those that time there was so seared in my brain. I think because I was always looking for language, and um, so I did. You know, I wrote this poem so many years after I'd lived there. But I, um, I think that's one of the advantages of travel poems is that you can be this person who's disconnected, and then you have a different way of being. You know, how are you? Who you could be anyone that's anonymous. You know totally anonymous, and so then what, you know? Yeah. No, I've talked to other poets about it, about travel, and they, they pretty much come back and say what you're saying in that, uh, one, kind of doing a lot of travel, the cliche is that you're running from something, but the poets I talk to have the opposite experience in that when they're in a foreign country around different customs and not entirely understanding the language that they most find themselves, and they find a great relief uh-huh. in that. Um, and it sounds like uh, it sounds like you're having a similar experience. I like that. That's a really yeah. That's a really great way of saying that. Well, let's get to another poem. Um, okay. And I was thinking we could take a look at trying to save uh, my niece from grieving. Okay. Let's look at that one. Let's see. Ooh, there it is. Shall I read it? You shall. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm trying to save my niece from grieving. After my father had recovered enough to sit up in his bed, my brother brought Claire in to see him. He was losing the tips of his fingers on his right hand. They were shriveled and black above the knuckles, the rough skin bent at wild angles. As Claire went to him, my father, who could not lift his arms, told her he dipped his fingers in blueberries. And I watched Claire measure the lie with a look I have seen my whole life on my brother's face. And in how Claire did not look away from the wounds on my father's hands, but still reached out to take hold of his wrist, I saw my brother, the way he can't help seeing all our flaws, the way he senses that for our weakness, wills himself to love us again. Thanks, Katie. That was... That's pretty extraordinary. Um, what can you, you know, it's weird to ask posts just like, hey, can you break that whole thing down for me? It's like, well, <laughs> you know, the poem's there. And I guess I would just say it's interesting how the brother in this poem nudges his way into the consciousness of the poem and attempts to, like, it seems right in character for him to unknowingly try to eclipse even this moment and that the speaker is <laughs> that the speaker is drawn to him and this like never mind Claire, never mind the father, but that the speaker is is I don't know, it's like being just in the tiniest way held hostage by somebody else's personality. And oh. uh, do you want to speak to that? It doesn't feel that way to me at all. It does feel that maybe he has a huge impression on me and right. always has. And Lumen's art, it's not, I I think actually it speaks to his, uh, what I'm trying to get out is this humility of um, the one who could be this force like that, but is always holding back in order that others are, um, 
taken care of. And oh, yeah, that's a that's a, such an amazing compliment in so many ways. Yeah, go on. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I mean I think this poem is an example of it's it this poem you wouldn't even believe the first draft of this poem how different it was and for me this is what getting at this idea of free verse and what makes free verse so hard is that you know you wouldn't believe I mean, the whittling that went on in the draft that this, this that preceded this and it was because it wasn't about my brother at first until in the revisions I saw that that was what the poem was about so. That's my experience with a lot of Cleaver's poems is it really sort of sort of wrenches the truth out of you. And um that's what it was like with when I finally figured out like, oh, this is what this is where this is taking me, this is what I'm I'm wanting to write about. It was um you know, I wish I I wish I um wrote all my poems that way, but you know, this uh <laughs> it's sort of, it's sort of like I said, this experience of sort of this wrenching out of, um, you know, not knowing where it was going and then seeing, uh, seeing the truth in it. So. Yeah, it's really incredible. Yeah, I think in that revision process where sometimes I won't even trust the first half of the poem because I think it just was there to lead me somewhere else. Um, and yeah, that I'm always taking hatchets, scalpels, whatever cuts to those yeah. type of poems to finally get to where they need to go. And that's, in a way, it kind of brings a mystery to the process of revision. It's, it's like you're hiding from yourself and, and that you're kind of confronted with this like dumb dead object called language. And it's, but it's talking back to you while simultaneously you're banging your head against it. And, uh, I think you, yeah, that it's, it's interesting to hear uh, how this poem evolved and finally, and, and some of the imagery, I just want to say in your poems, the imagery, you've really, you've really picked up on how to, and I kind of described it a couple of weeks ago to somebody, that the, the poet can drag the reader's eye like a cursor on a computer screen, no. and, you know, no. and, and kind of guide it where it needs to go. And that you're always aware of the scale of things that you know the techniques of of dragging the reader's eye to something large to something small to something near to something far away and uh it brings when a poet does that, I think it brings so much pleasure because it's a i think to make a reader see in their mind's eye is a tremendous uh, intimacy to have with a reader, um, that kind of relationship to get inside them like that, to, to make them see and where to see and guide them how to see. Um, we're nearing our time, Katie, I, but uh, I want okay. to definitely get to the the final poem in the book. Can you tell us a little about why you ended the book here and uh, anything else you want to say about it before you read it? Um, well, again, this came out of a conversation. I have a terrific editor, Wayne Miller. It was such a gift um, that when I uh, won the Lena Miles Weaver Todd Prize that I got to work with Wayne. He's just an incredibly uh, generous person. And so I, I think this had been in other places, and then he suggested it be the final poem. And um, it gave it a, a really interesting way. Just the ending was really... I. I really um, 
liked how it didn't have this sort of booming ending to the book. There was this sort of, um, I don't know, it sort of ends on the glacier, but in a in a different tone, and I like that. It sort of seemed like it was opening out somehow. So, um, yeah, this is the Perito Moreno Glacier, as it says in the title, and um, you want me to read it? Of course. Thank you. Okay. One lost his hat to the wind. It bobs on the surface of the jade green lake like a black gull. Clouds shift. The sound of lightning echoes from the ice cliff, and a powder of ice shakes loose, splashes. Two women clap and coo, coaxing the glacier to perform, and it does feel alive, heavy-tailed, befanged, and slow, cooling the wind that crosses us as though it breathed. The pilot feeds the boat to a melting berg, leans out with gloves and pickaxe, hauling ice aboard. He fills glass tumblers, and when the wind picks up, pours shots of whiskey on the rocks. On deck, we raise our glasses to Perito, the Pleistocene's most stubborn son. And when the whiskey's done, while we look out at the glacier, its white-forked tail unfurling miles of Patagon peaks, we chew a little ice between our teeth. Katie, thanks. That was that was amazing, and it reminds me of just what we were talking about the way you guide the reader's eye. Just examples of it: the pilot speeds the boat to the melting berg, and then suddenly we're at gloves and pickaxe and hauling ice, and and I think when, that your that you your speaker are in these vast kind of spectacles of geology, that it does lend itself. Uh, and you were talking about this in the beginning, uh, it lends itself to the poetry of scale and that you can really play with imagery in an honest and genuine way because you are literally experiencing it and it doesn't seem contrived at all. And uh, and what a way to end... You're welcome. Yeah, what a way to end the poem. Uh, to a little ice yeah. between our teeth and I think just the hyper-focus <laughs> on... Such an intimate little telescope spot on the on the body is perfect. Uh, Katie well, didn't. I wanted to say. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say quickly. I've you know I've had conversations with poets. Do your poems begin as an image or as a sound? And um, so, I, often a lot of these poems begin. I think some it's a little of both for me. Um, uh, but a lot of these poems began as images, and so that that context of you saying me pulling the cursor is me really trying to bring that image back or bring it, you know, bring someone into that image. So. Yeah, no, that's, that's excellent. Yeah. And there's just something, I think there, I don't know. It gets me wanting to have a conversation between those lines and poetry that are purely abstract thoughts compared to poems of description. Um, mm-hmm. But I think we might have to save that for uh, a <laughs> question about your uh, second book. Um, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> Katie Denon, thank you so much for talking to me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, John. This was such a treat and such so wide-ranging. It was really great. All right, good. Um, I've been talking to Katie Didden and her book, The Glacier's Wake. Uh, if if you, in fact, possess this book, um, you must you must read every poem aloud or you are denying your entire body of revelation. <laughs> Uh, Katie, thanks. (laughs) Thank you.